You turn again in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians and to chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we can read again at verse 6. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many, so that contrawise you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. Do you ever find it difficult to come to church? Do you ever find it difficult to come to church because perhaps you feel that you don't belong? Or perhaps you feel that you stand out like a sore thumb. You feel like an outsider. You feel like, like an outsider because you look around and you see that everyone else so obviously belongs. But your own conscience testifies. Your memory perhaps haunts you. The realization of perhaps many things. And it leaves you with a fear of discovery. It leaves you with a fear of rejection. Maybe so much so that it's hard to come. Because if you don't come, you can't be rejected. It's not always easy to come to church, is it? I think we generally take it for granted with folks who are faithful in church that they'll be there. But maybe it's a battle for you. Maybe it's a battle for more than we realize. Corinth was a large, privileged, prosperous Roman colony that was renowned for immorality. It's a center of pagan worship. And a large part of that pagan worship centered around prostitutes in the pagan temples. And so maybe you don't need much of an explanation to understand what so-called worship entailed. To Corinthianize was a term used for sexual immorality. During his second missionary journey, Paul had opportunity to preach in Corinth. He spoke first to Jews who rejected him largely, and then he went to the Gentiles. And in Acts chapter 18 and verse 9, we're told that the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. And he said, be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee. And no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. But I have much people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So this gospel church was established in this heathen city. Paul, as you can understand, felt a great affection for the believers there, not only because there were believers with him in the Lord Jesus Christ, but because he'd ministered there for a period of time. And so he would know many of them very well. 
But immorality is an issue in a society. But it also is an issue which infected the church. And in his first epistle, he wrote to address an issue. An issue which he said was outrageous even in that immoral heathen society. There was an incestuous relationship. There was a man who lived with his father's wife as though that woman was his wife. It's a bit confusing to think of that, children, isn't it? I'll say this is something that's not even named amongst the Gentiles. There's not a name for it because it's just it's so obviously wrong. It's perverse. And this took place within the church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 2, he says regarding this, he says, and you're puffed up and have not rather mourned. Why were they puffed up? They're puffed up because they were so broad-minded that they could accommodate this within the fellowship. Paul says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He said, you're glorying. It's not good. I remember discussing something to do with the structure of the church with a friend from a very different background. And he said, oh, he said, I don't want that. I just want a simple New Testament church. It's a very naive outlook. The simple New Testament church was not that perfect place that we might think of it. There was outrageous issues. And this was one of the issues that was addressed in the New Testament church. And so Paul has to instruct the believers there that they would exercise discipline. And with the authority of Christ, take action. They were to excommunicate from their fellowship this person. They were to be removed from the means of grace. Not with a desire to destroy, but to deliver. But it's expressed in the most strong ways, isn't it? Deliver such a one unto Satan. Why? For the destruction of the faith of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means if this one will live ungodly, then they cannot live as a member of Christ's church. And so the believers there were to demonstrate the consequences of sin by saying, you are not a part of the church. You can't live like that and call yourself a Christian. They were to emphasize the consequences of sin with the hope that by emphasizing the consequences of sin, that person might actually be saved from the ultimate consequence of sin, eternal destruction. They might come to repentance. This glorying in broad-mindedness is not good. It's not compassion. No compassion to wink at sin and to say it's no big deal. It's not compassion, it's contemptuous. Because you're encouraging people on a broad road that leads to destruction. 
You know, true love does not indulge sin. True love does not celebrate sin. True love will hazard temporary displeasure. You see that worked out in families all the time, don't you? Children, at times when maybe your parents have said to you, oh, this hurts me more than it hurts you, and you think, yeah, right. But it's true. Discipline is not easy. I know parent likes to have the tension that discipline brings. But any faithful parent so loves their child that they will hazard that for the ultimate good of the child, for their benefit, ultimately for their salvation. True love will hazard temporary displeasure. True love is not about being popular. Rather, it is principled. And so Paul wrote, he wrote with a concern for this individual. But he wrote with a concern, actually, for the whole of the church. He wrote with a concern for the gospel. Because the gospel was so misrepresented by their compromise, their carelessness. He's saying to him, he says, do you have any concern for righteousness? Does the gospel matter? Having addressed that issue by letter, because the apostle was not there, you can imagine maybe his concern to know what will happen, what will, what will be the consequences of this. And you have that at home, don't you? Something happens. Parents speak. Child reacts. Storms up. What will be the consequences? What will happen? There's a waiting to see. There's an anxiety. Will there be a settling down? Will there be a reconciliation? Or will this escalate? Will this go on? Different commentators take different views. Some think that perhaps between the first and the second epistle, Paul made a, a short visit to Corinth. Some think that maybe he wrote another epistle which we don't have preserved for us. Maybe that's what's referred to in verse 9. For to this end also did I write. Regardless, what we do know is that Paul is explaining here that while it was his intention to come and to visit the church in Corinth with an urgency that... He delayed. He delayed his visit because he wanted to wait to hear better news. He wanted to hear that there had been a good response to his instruction. The church had acted faithfully. Seems that he was reluctant maybe to always be rebuking. Why? Well, because the gospel is much more than simply the rebuking of sin. It's necessary to rebuke sin. But the gospel is much more than that. But maybe there's also evidence here of just a wise, 
pastoral understanding that sometimes it takes time. Again, maybe that's something that you see worked out at home. Sometimes you need to be a little patient and to give a little time for the initial anger to pass, for the words which were spoken to sink in. Although Paul has delayed his coming, he is anxious. He's anxious to know what is happening. And so he sends Titus to find out. And through reading 2 Corinthians, you find he explains this, that he's making his way to Corinth, but he's hoping that before he arrives in Corinth, he will hear. He will hear via Titus, if no other way, about how they've responded. And he speaks about coming to Troas, and there's no sign of Titus. There's an opportunity in Troas to be preaching the gospel, but he's concerned with the issue in Corinth. And so he continues on to Macedonia. And then in chapter 7, he tells us in Macedonia, he met Titus coming to him. And how relieved he was. Chapter 7, verse 11. Is how he rejoiced that they sorrowed after a goodly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourself, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things you've approved yourself to be clear in this matter. He says, the church has done well. The believers there have done well, they've stood up. They've played the man, as it were. They've acted faithfully. Not only has the church done well, in the mercy of God, the individual has done well. And that's what we have in these verses here. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many, so that contrawise you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. This church discipline has shocked this individual out of their indifference and has provoked this individual to great sorrow. Not that self-pitying sorrow which digs you into a hole and leaves you trapped, but rather to repentance, a godly sorrow. And so the apostle is now writing about how to deal with a penitent individual, how to deal with a repentant believer. This person has fallen. This person has failed. This person has brought great shame. And what we have here is speaking about a specific example, but there's surely a general principle that we are to consider, to recognize. What is that? You could summarize the gospel in this way. It's welcome them in. Welcome them back. 
First of all, they are to receive. Contrawise, having inflicted this punishment, now having put out, you are to receive back. Contrawise, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him. Receive back into fellowship. There was a public putting away, and there's to be a public receiving back, and it's to be done collectively by the church. To forgive means to act with grace. This person has offended. This person has brought trouble to them all. This person is identified with the most shameful experience in their collective experience, in their collective history. But they are to receive him back. You know, we must forgive, forgive everyone who offends us. We're to forgive even our enemies. When Paul's speaking about forgiveness here, he's not simply speaking about a disposition towards someone, but actually he's speaking about reconciliation. It's not always easy, possible to be reconciled. You're to forgive those who you can't be reconciled to. Those who wrong you and go off, you're not to harbor bitterness. You're not to live with resentment. You're to forgive those who do you wrong and go away. You can't be reconciled to that person. And nor can you be reconciled to the person who's done you wrong and shows no repentance. You can forgive that person, but you cannot be reconciled. But here they are to receive, they are to be reconciled to this man. Because he has sorrowed for his sin. Receive. Receive again. Why are they to receive this one? Well, surely it's because of this. Because Christ receives. Christ receives sinners. And it's the duty of the church to represent this. It's the duty of the church to demonstrate this. It's the duty of the church to concur with this, to receive those who Christ has received. In the preaching of the word, we must call for sinners to repent. We must delight in repentance. And we must embrace those who repent. We have a duty to pursue righteousness. There's not one of us who achieves righteousness. In the terms of fellowship in the church is not one's own perfect righteousness, but rather it is that we repent of our sin and to become rejoicing in the righteousness of Christ, that righteousness which is imputed to each one of us. even in all the mess of what our sin has done. Past sin does not exclude. Friends, we are to embrace those whom Christ has embraced. 
We're to receive those who belong to him. Just as in discipline, the church was to act in the name of the Lord and with the authority of the Lord. So in the name of the Lord, they were to receive and to embrace and to love. Because the gospel is for sinners. You as an individual, us together, we have a responsibility to receive. Maybe you say to yourself, but it's not really safe that kind of just forgive and forget. Some people have done some pretty horrible things. Isn't there a danger of being taken advantage of? There is. There is. But godly sorrow work, work with repentance. Repentance is evidenced by fruits. You know, forgiveness is not the same as foolishness. Just because someone's forgiven doesn't mean they're to be placed in a position of temptation. It doesn't mean that person's to be placed in a position of immediate influence. But there is to be a receiving and embracing within the church. And what's spoken about here is the response to an individual who has been publicly disciplined. And not every sin calls for public discipline. Every sin is public. Not every sin is outwardly scandalous. Not every sin is in the face of the congregation. But there is to be a receiving of sinners in the gospel, isn't it? We're not to take one another for granted as we gather here. See people Lord's Day after Lord's Day. Isn't that a triumph of God's grace? That Lord's Day after Lord's Day, there's these people who come back, not having completed a perfect week, not having lived a perfect life, but come back. Conscious of a need for his grace. Come back in an attitude of repentance. Seeking more of his grace. Maybe there's times that you find it hard to come to church. But maybe there's times that others find it hard to come to church too. And you should be there. Ready to receive those who come. You ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. There's to be a receiving, but not only is there a receiving, there's a relieving, to a lifting of the burden from this brother. You picture the scene as he, the man who's been cast out, who's told that he doesn't belong. As he comes, brokenhearted, with the realization of the horror of his sin. And he comes back because there's nobody else he can go because 
It's in Christ alone that hope is to be found. And so he gathers, or he expresses a desire to gather with the believers. Imagine how burdened he is as he comes near to them. He comes into their fellowship and how there's a need to relieve him of that burden. Now, ultimately, it's Christ who relieves the burden of sin, isn't it? But there's the responsibility placed upon us to assure and to comfort. Lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. To be overwhelmed, overwhelmed and destroyed by hopelessness. To be crushed by the, the weight of grief. Have you never felt anything of that? Have you felt something of that? Can you not use your imagination to think of what others have also felt and experienced? To comfort and to ensure, to assure, to counsel and to encourage. This man was not to come back as a second-class citizen. He's not to come back as a marked man. He's to come back as one of Christ's men. And that means to welcome into the fellowship, but it means more than welcoming into the formal fellowship, doesn't it? It means to welcome into your lives. And that means more than simply a hearty greeting on the Lord's Day. It means to involve that person in your life, to involve yourself in their lives. You know, you have responsibility to welcome people. It's good that there's men who stand at the door and welcome people as they come in. But that's really just to be a token of what you as a congregation are ready to do which is to embrace one another, to be encouraging of one another, to be confirming your love to one another. You know, the love that was to be demonstrated in excluding this man is now to be demonstrated in embracing this man. That's not easy. But if there is not a receiving and if there's not a relieving of a brother of his birth, you don't have the fellowship of the saints. There's a danger that churches become really preaching stations so that people come, you hear the sermon together, but then you go away and you're never really together. You're all just individuals who happen to be in the same place at the same time. 
That's not what is required of us. That is not what demonstrates the gospel. We must interact with one another. We must live with one another. And that's the work of a lifetime. Because you know that the memory of sin can haunt you. You know that the devil can tempt you. You know that doubts can return. You know that you need encouragement, not just once or twice. Not only do you need encouragement, you need to be an encourager. An encourager. You're to relieve one another of the burdens, of the grief, of the weight, of the heaviness, and the loneliness, and the brokenness of sin. I cannot say, well, that's the way, that's what happens when you do that sort of thing. Because to do that is to turn your back. To do that is to withhold a gospel heart. To do that is not to love. It's amazing the sensitivity with which Paul writes. In the first epistle, he mentions the sin. Here he doesn't. He doesn't mention the name. In some of his epistles, he rebukes individuals. And those individuals who are being rebuked are those who are active in their sin. But here is one who's repentant. And so even in the way it's referred to, there's a kind of a covering of it, isn't there? It's spoken about clearly enough so everyone knows what's been spoken about. But there's no exposing of this individual to further shame. They were called to stand together. There is to be a receiving. There is to be a relieving. And there is to be, therefore, a rejoicing in the gospel. Because that's a working out of what the gospel is. A rejoicing in the sufficiency of the gospel to redeem and to recover. To rejoice in the mercy and the grace of God. Paul says in verse 11, lest Satan should get an advantage of us. If you don't do this, Satan will have the upper hand. Why? Because the gospel will be misrepresented. And if you're in a church where the gospel is misrepresented, you're in a difficult place, aren't you? So the gospel must be represented faithfully in the preaching. 
But the gospel must be faithfully represented in the lives of each and every one of us as individuals, in the life that we share together. By Satan, get an advantage of us. We must rejoice in the sufficiency of the gospel. And if we truly believe in the sufficiency of the gospel, we will be able to embrace the sinning brother. We will not hold ourselves apart. Well, the wonderful thing that we find in God's word is there is a way back. Gospel is a call to welcome in and to welcome back. And we rejoice, not only that the, the grace of God shown to this individual, but that this is the gospel that we all partake of. It says in 1 Corinthians in chapter 10, there is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. That doesn't mean that everyone has sinned the same sin. It doesn't mean that everyone has the same thought. It doesn't mean that everyone indulges the same sin to the same degree. But it certainly does mean that we're not so very different to one another. And the potential is in each and every heart. And so we're not to hold ourselves back and to think that we stand. Because the person who thinks they stand is in danger of falling. There is to be a receiving and a relieving and a rejoicing. A rejoicing in, in the grace of God. I suppose we need to ask ourselves tonight, does our individual disposition welcome people in? Does our disposition together welcome people in? Do we hold out in the way that we interact, hope that we believe in the grace of God and the sufficiency of his grace? to redeem, to transform, to renew, to take someone who's utterly broken in sin and remake that person so that they are a trophy of grace, useful in the kingdom of God. Are we ready to welcome people in? Because it is demanding. It has a demand upon you, not simply on the Lord's day, but it's a demand upon you that should, you should feel every day of the week. For we're to live making a place for one another. 
but we should be glad to live in that way. Because in the mercy of God, he's made a place for you. And therefore, having received mercy, we're to show mercy. Paul says in verse 8, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. Do you think of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ expressed toward you? Are you ready? Are you willing to confirm your love toward one another? That we will manifest the love of God amongst ourselves. That is a witness to the world around. Christ is alive. And the Lord is in the midst of his people. I'm speaking largely, of course, to those who are converted tonight. I hope that if you're not converted, that you hear in this, that by the grace of God, there is a place for you in the gospel. That the Lord calls sinners. He instructs his church to deceive sinners. But he instructs his church to deceive sinners because he himself is ready to deceive sinners. And he calls you to turn from your sin and to set your trust in him. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we marvel. For we are conscious to some degree of the ugliness of sin. Yet, O Lord, you call sinners to come and to be reconciled, to come and to live in your presence. We marvel, O Lord, that you call us, that we would come to receive mercy and not be condemned. And we pray then that we who have received mercy would be ready to show mercy. We pray that you would deliver us from any hardness of heart. Deliver us from any indifference. Deliver us, O Lord, from any selfishness. But rather give us compassion. Give us grace. Give us mercy. Give us grace to show mercy. Pray that you would grant that your blessing would follow the preaching of your word. You would watch over us now according to your faithfulness and receive our praise for Jesus' sake. Amen.